we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. My name is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And our guest this week is Congresswoman Yvette Harrell. She represents the 2nd District in New Mexico, which is basically the whole southern half of New Mexico. I actually didn't know this. I looked it up. It's one of the largest congressional districts in area, House districts in the country. In fact, it's the largest one that isn't a whole state. Like Alaska has one congressman, and so that district is the whole state. Congresswoman Harrell's is the largest one that isn't a whole state. It's huge. And it includes all of New Mexico's border, international border, with Mexico. And so we thought it would be good to have her on to talk about what are the issues in her district that relate to the border. Thanks for joining us, Congresswoman. I hope you had a good holiday and a good new year. I did, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. And what I wanted to start with before we talk about the border issues in your district, give us a little bit of background about yourself. How did you get into this? How did you end up being representative for this border district in New Mexico? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Well, I'm a native New Mexican, born and raised actually in the second congressional district. And of course, my parents still live in Alamogordo, which is the community that I reside in. And it's an interesting story. I think it's Not so unique, but I have always been self-employed. I've had the blessing of owning several small businesses and working for myself. So I understand the concept of signing the front of a check and not just the back. But as I went on and was more involved in my community and with my businesses, 9-11 is what really kind of opened my eyes to get back in church. I grew up in a Christian home, but to get back in church and also to get more involved in government. and. That really pushed me to get involved with our local party, worked on some campaigns, and then I ran for the New Mexico legislature and won, and so I held that seat for eight years. So I feel like that gave me such an opportunity to understand the unique challenges of not only the district, but the state as a whole. And it's just a heart for serving people really is what propelled me to run for this seat. And we had a congressman who ran for governor. So there was an open opportunity, and I took it and did not win the first time, but came back last year and ran and ran hard, and and here we are. So and I couldn't be more honored to be representing the New Mexico 2nd Congressional District. Good. And so this is your first term, so you're going to be running again at the end of this year for re-election, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And you were mentioning the size of the district. It's, It's true. It goes from Arizona border to the Texas border, and then, of course, the 180 miles on the southern border. So we have quite a diverse district as, as it relates to people, industry. We certainly have uh, challenges in our district with the oil and gas. We have a huge producing county in our state that obviously is concerned about the policies here. But the border has been really the focus over the last number of months. 
because of this administration's unwillingness to keep some of the policies in place that President Trump had done. So it's been a topic of conversation throughout our entire district. And that's one of the first things I wanted to ask about is the border wall. There had been for a number of years, some kind of barriers on the border, the New Mexico part of the border specifically, the part in your district, but they were almost all just what they call vehicle barriers. They're kind of like split rail fences, but made out of you know I-beams. Yes. And they're not designed to stop people. They're just designed to stop cars, as the name suggests. And so what happened under President Trump, he was twisting the arm of Congress, couldn't get them to approve what they called new wall but they did replacement wall. And so basically they just replaced those very limited vehicle barriers with real, what they call pedestrian barriers. I mean, they're whatever they are, 20 feet high. They're, you know, serious barriers that are different in kind from what was there before. But the issue, the interesting issue is with regard to this administration is as soon as President Biden was sworn in almost a year ago now, he told the construction workers put down their tools, walk away. They weren't allowed to tighten one more bolt, pour any more cement, immediately had to stop. What that's done, and I've seen this actually in your district, is left these gaps in the wall. There's one place where there's actually a gate, a doorway for a gate. And these gates are required because there's a boundary commission that has to access these border markers. But there's a doorway and then they're going to put in the gate. Well, they never put in the gate. This is this doorway. You've probably seen it yourself. And there are other gaps in the fence. And so I was just wondering what your thoughts on that. The administration has said it's going to be filling some of those gaps. Is there anything you can tell us about that? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really such a disappointment because you're right. The border wall, especially the one that the Trump administration was putting in, is incredible. And I actually took a group of congressmen from the Oversight Committee down to the southern border last March, uh, so they could see for themselves exactly what you're talking about. You know, you've got this amazing wall, this barrier, and then you'll have gaps, not only the size of that gate, but you will have gaps on three-quarter of a mile. And what fills in that gap is back to that Normandy fence that you were speaking about, or in some cases, just barbed wire fence. So absolutely, we're funneling people now to areas of the southern border of New Mexico where they're coming right across of these ranches. And here's what's unfortunate. We're giving more of a carte blanche to those coming here illegally than we are in protecting those who live and work around the border area. And it's sickening to see the amount of money that has been spent and that was allocated to finish that border barrier. And now all of that material, I don't know if you saw this when you were down there, but you've got batch plants for cement. You've got all the material, sand, gravel, the rebar, the Ballard, you've got everything just sitting out there. And that's either going to be destroyed by at some point in time by the federal government or just sit there in waste. And what taxpayers and what Americans don't understand is that's paid for. That's that's like hiring a contractor to build you a house and they do everything but put the roof on. Right. I mean, right. I mean you've already paid for it. It's so disingenuous and it's such a fraud to take people's money, take taxpayer money, allocate it for the wall, and then change policies and not to mention there were about 5,000 jobs attached to the construction of that border barrier. So just all the way around, not only did we lose jobs, now we've opened up the border. It's a national security issue. It's a community issue. And I'm sure we'll talk about the traffic coming through with not only people, 
but the drug traffic coming through the southern border. And one of the issues in your district and elsewhere along the border isn't just the gaps in the physical barrier that were left by Biden administration policy, but in a sense, the gaps in personnel too. Because as Border Patrol agents have basically turned into Walmart greeters for illegal aliens, having to, you know, be devote all of these personnel to processing these illegal immigrants who are turning themselves in, along much of the border, there's just nobody patrolling. I remember when I was in, this was last fall, I was actually at your district and some other areas, adjacent areas in the border, and I didn't see a lot of Border Patrol agents. I mean, I was along literally right at the fence, a part of it still in New Mexico, but close to El Paso, where the fence was completed there, but they had huge fields of the bollards, the the fence units just piled up on their sides. I mean, literally thousands of them. I, I did the math. And I have never been at the border right next to a fence for a long time without somebody coming by, Border Patrol agent, and saying, hey, you know, what's up? How you doing? That sort of thing. Just sort of just checking on what's going on. Nowhere when I was on the border did anybody approach me. It's thin on the ground. And it seems like that's an issue as well, that personnel gaps that has got to be affecting your district. Yeah, it is absolutely not only the lack of personnel, but the morale, because, you know, you have the men and women that are in the Border Patrol and different ICE agents and so forth. We just do not have enough. And in fact, I was down on the border seven times last year on my own. I took the Codell down there. But here's what's happening. The time that we were down there, Chief Chavez of the El Paso sector, which also oversees the New Mexico side, you know, they had 120 agents at the processing plant instead of boots on the ground watching the border because of all the immigrants that were coming over and then being taken to El Paso for processing. Right away, that puts all of our southern border residents in a vulnerable position, and they just don't have enough people. I've actually written to the governor of the state of New Mexico three different times asking her to deploy the National Guard back to the southern border to give these men and women some help to reinforcements, you know, more boost on the ground because you've been down there. So, you know, it's very desolate. And then we're seeing that traffic, that uptick in foot traffic coming across. And of course, you know, it's in the second congressional. This was on Fox News where those children were dropped over the fence early last year. Then there was another video of the little five-year-old left on the river's edge in the dark of night. And that just was a blessing that there happened to be agents in the area. But yeah, we just don't have enough personnel down there and morale is so bad. And these policies coming out of Washington, D.C., like you said, they have made it to where they're basically Walmart readers. I mean, they took away Title 42, which we've introduced a bill to put Title 42 back in play. And Title 42 was the health and protective order that President Trump put in place that said if you get caught crossing the border from Canada or Mexico illegally because we're under this pandemic, you would be immediately expelled back to either Mexico or Canada. That was a health and safety issue. And I find it fascinating that here we are all these months later, now we're with the mask mandates, the vaccination mandates, all these health orders, kids still out of school, all these things. And yet they turn a blind eye to the southern border where we know in the month of July, there was a 700% uptick in COVID cases coming across. And what's crazy 
we don't even do so much as a COVID test on the southern border. So if it's really about the health, safety, and welfare of the American people, why aren't we securing the border or at the very least having a COVID test? It makes no sense, but we have got to do something to help our agents to get up and go to work every day to protect our border. They're being tripped up every step of the way by the Department of Homeland Security, by these policies coming out of Washington, D.C., and it's just a shame. The New Mexico section of the border is under the El Paso sector's area, but you know there are what they call stations, which are subunits right. all over, including in New Mexico, and I'm, I mean, a bunch of the agents must live there. Have you what kind of things have you heard from your own constituents who are either working in the Border Patrol or have family members, that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, I hear it all the time, and you're right. We have a, a number of constituents, and this is what's interesting. The agents have really put themselves in harm's way when it comes to COVID or other infectious diseases, not to mention the violence. Because what you saw down in New Mexico, we don't see those big swaths of people like you saw at the Rio Grande Valley or what's coming now over to Yuma. What we have is a lot of individual, usually young men. We have a lot of drug trafficking coming across our southern border. And so we're putting our men and women in harm's way. And the morale, again, is terrible. And then with these additional mandates and then taking away policies that actually work to the Remain in Mexico, the Title 42, they're very frustrated. But here you have men and women who have, in some cases, have 15, 20 years with the Border Patrol. So it's not easy for them to just want to leave and then go find something else to do, find another career path. And so it's just such a disservice to the people who have kept our southern border safe. And the numbers, I mean, these are record numbers of people that are coming across, people and drugs that are coming across the southern border. And the drug issue, I think, is one that people don't think about the connection between regular border policy and the drug issue, because it's you know pretty obvious that if you've got holes in the wall that are funneling traffic and you've got border patrol agents being stripped from actually patrol duty to do basically welcome wagon work, that the drug cartels are going to take advantage of that, either because there's nobody there or they actually strategically use groups of aliens to cross in one place to distract border patrol so they can cross elsewhere. So what have you seen you know, at the border there and in your district or elsewhere about the drug issue and how the weakness at the border is actually facilitating the smuggling of drugs. Right. Well, I mean, it just goes to show, look, at every state in the country right now is a border state because of the failed policies of this administration and taking away of some of the previous policies that worked. But just thinking about the drugs in general, between 2018 and 2020, they only seized 321 pounds a month of this fentanyl. Now, you know, they're averaging 830 pounds a month of fentanyl. And now, as we've seen on the news over the last few weeks, that's the number one killer for overdoses for individuals between, I think it's the age 25 through 45, something like that. Mm -hmm. This open border is causing so many problems and so much harm to our neighborhoods all over the nation. It isn't just about southern border. And one thing that our office has done we have set up a number of task forces. So we meet with individuals throughout the district. And one of our task forces is obviously the border. And the other is law enforcement. So we meet regularly, either on the phone, through Zoom, and when I'm in district in person with our sheriffs. And the uptick that they've seen in drug 
paraphernalia with the crime rates that are skyrocketing now in Albuquerque and other places throughout the state and the district. This is now putting more pressure on our local law enforcement Hmm. because in New Mexico, many of our law enforcement agencies are understaffed. Many of them are under budget. And so now we've got more problems happening because of the open border, drugs, people, crime, all of this. And then on the other side of the coin, you've got this whole defund the police situation going on. So we've just not made it easy for any of the men and women that are in these service positions that protect our communities, protect our border. But the uptick in drugs is incredible. And every single one of our county sheriffs that we work with has seen it. And it's interesting, too, because some of the very small counties, the Debaca County, that's not even on the border, they're catching people with fentanyl. So it is absolutely statewide in our in our state, and it is countrywide because we're seeing those apprehensions all over the country. It's a major, major issue, but this administration doesn't want to address it. And that's what I, I just scratch my head and think, why are we not protecting Americans? You'd mentioned the sheriffs who, you know, are pretty much on the ground. And, you know, it sounds like they kind of get what the issue is and you have a good relationship with them. But what about the state government? I mean, the state government in New Mexico is dominated by Democrats, by members of the president's party, both the legislature and the governor's office. Yeah. Have they engaged with this issue in any serious way in the way, for instance, Texas has? No. In fact, that's what's the disappointment. I'll give you an example. I'm the only Republican in our entire delegation. Some months ago, there was a bill introduced in the Senate to do mandatory COVID testing for those coming across the border illegally. Mm -hmm. The two U.S. senators from New Mexico voted against that bill. Only nine senators voted against it. And again, I've sent letters to our governor asking for help on the border in the form of the National Guard, redeploying the National Guard. She refuses to do it. New Mexico, in terms of government, is so much like the administration here in Washington, D.C., they just kind of turn the blind eye to it with no regard to the concern that the citizens have, that the law enforcement agencies have, the frontline workers have. It just makes no sense, but they are getting no help at all from our administration in New Mexico. Again, you just kind of sit back and think, how are we being so dumb in these decisions by not putting the right people, the right forces, the right money? And I see a much larger uptick. And and I think when you were down there, I don't know if you went to Sunland Park or not over into that area. They're starting to see a much bigger footprint of illegals coming across because as they start doing things on the Texas side where Governor Abbott is going to take money and start finishing the wall over in Texas. And we've seen the, the rush now move to Yuma, Arizona. But what the news media isn't picking up on is New Mexico is a pretty darn big state in between Texas and Yuma. And here we are, you know, seeing a larger uptake in foot traffic, but not the big groups like you're seeing on TV. It's mostly, again, individuals, young men, and drug runners is what we see. And we've posted pictures on our Facebook page so that people can see. And just this week, we actually posted some pictures that someone down on the border had given us, a friend of ours, the old fence that was just cut up with bolt cutters. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very easy to make a path forward. They didn't want to walk all the way down to the gap, so they just took bolt cutters. And this is part of the old fence. There were some barriers put up. They weren't very effective, and clearly you can see from the photos. But it is a crisis situation. 
And, you know, another thing that they don't talk about on the news, and we've addressed this, in fact, we introduced the bill, but the ranchers, the farmers, the communities that are down in the right on the border, it's the property damage, loss of livestock, water lines being cut. Right. I mean, there are people that live in New Mexico down near the border who have lived there for generations, have huge ranching operations down there. They can't even leave their children home alone. They can't go out to the barn to check livestock at night without carrying a gun. This is not how it should be for Americans. It, they should be safe on their property, safe in their homes, safe in their country. But that's not the case happening on the southern border. And I know those kind of stories are happening as well as New Mexico, but in Arizona and in Texas. And the interesting thing is your point about the people crossing in your district are less likely to be, you know, the families and more likely to be single men. Those guys don't want to be caught. The families, the people bringing kids over know that Biden's going to let them go or the odds are pretty good. And so they just turn themselves in. Even though it's a bad phenomenon, they're not carrying guns. They're not bringing drugs. They're just trying to game our system. Right. Whereas the guys who are coming across single men, they don't want to be caught. Those are people, they may be criminals, they may have been deported before, which makes them felons if they come back, or they may be running dope. So it's a more serious thing for ranchers and farmers and stuff who are near the border to encounter those people, as opposed to, you know, some Guatemalan woman with two kids, she's not going to be shooting anybody. I mean, it's a bad right. thing. It's a bad phenomenon, but it's not an immediate public safety danger for border residents the way single men can be much more significantly dangerous. That's right. Yeah. On our Facebook page, people can go and look back and see. We have pictures that were caught on a game camera from daytime, and you can see where these guys are all in camouflage. That's how they dress coming across the border in New Mexico, most of them, you know, and then they have carpet wrapped around their feet, right. their shoes. So, so they that they don't leave it. footprints yeah. that you can follow. They don't leave the footprints. It's a very interesting situation. But again, like you say, the guys coming across in through New Mexico are mostly single adult males. They're either running drugs or they have, like you say, criminal background already, have been maybe deported before, do not want to get caught. I've been down there so many times. And the last time I was down on the Johnson Ranch, where one of the really large gaps, it's a three-quarter mile gap in the wall, mm -hmm. there was actually a pursuit happening. I was surprised to be watching a pursuit happen across that ranch with two helicopters. There, that day, there were agents out there because they were after a small group of about 10 men. In my mind, I thought, I would be afraid to live down here. Sure. I just don't know how they do it. And I, I just admire these families that live in and around the border. But again, these are not just folks that just picked up and moved down there from New York or Tennessee and just decided to homestead. These are people who have had working ranch operations for decades. This is how they make their living. And there are so many complications with it. For instance, when these guys come up through the border, especially in the summer when it's so hot, of course, the first thing they want to find is water. And they'll often hang out around the water tanks where the livestock get their water. But what this does is it pushes the livestock away. They they won't come up to the water oh. tanks when they're when guys are sitting around it trying to cool off. And so, in other words, even if they're not cutting the lines or something, they're still interfering with the livestock's access to water. Yes, and what had happened on the Johnson Ranch is they ended up losing several cattle because the cow wouldn't go to the water oh. because they, these guys were hanging around. And it's just 
story after story, stolen vehicles, cut fences. Once they get into America and they get on, say, one of these large ranches, you know, it's, it's cross-section. There's different pastures and all of this. They'll just cut the barbed fences rather than crawl through them. And so then you've got this whole situation where you've got open fences. Years and years ago, Mr. Johnson told me that there would be a very minimal number of people that would come across the border. And they used to use the water hose, turn it on, get, a, get water, and move on. Nowadays, they don't understand because things have changed. You know, there's more technology. So they'll just break the water lines because mm. they don't understand how to use them. So, and of course, in a desert, you know, water is such a valuable asset to have. And then you've got flooding going on around your stock watering locations because they've just broken the lines off. It just, I can't tell you how many people I've met with, talked with who've lost animals, dogs have been shot, dogs have been killed, you know, they're watchdogs. It's just, a very different set of circumstances for border communities. But again, this is just spilling off into the interior. So now we're seeing the uptick in the fentanyl, other drugs throughout the entire nation. And just like over Christmas, you saw the reports where now that they're flying these immigrant families all over the country to places like Pennsylvania, you know, pulling them out of the ICE detainment centers, right. which taxpayer dollars paid for, and pushing them into the interior and beyond, for what? You know, I mean, and the sad thing about it, we cannot, Mark, get any answers out of this administration. I mean, we've written letters to the oversight chair to have hearings and ask my orcas and others, what is going on? Why are these people being moved? Who's paying for all of this? What is the actual cost to the American taxpayer? And why are we seeing this movement without any oversight, any notification, and other members have signed on to letters, have made these same requests, and yet they just go unanswered. Yeah, well, we have trouble even just getting basic statistics out of this administration. It's really remarkable. Right. One thing I wanted to ask about also is your district is little more than half Mexican-American. Your own background is Cherokee. And that's not mean it doesn't matter one way or the other, really, but it does matter in the sense that the other side, the anti-border side, always presents the issue of border enforcement and immigration enforcement as some kind of nefarious racist plot. Does that come up when you talk to constituents in your district? Again, Mexican-Americans in particular? No, and, and I think the left likes to make that a talking point. Right. You know, and they're obviously for the open border policy and with no regard, you know, because there's two very different issues. Immigration reform and securing the border, two very different things happening, but they always want to just make it a one big issue. But here's what I do here. There are, and you're right, there are a number of Hispanics in our district, but there are a number of families in Hispanics for years who have come to our southern border and gone through the process and done it legally. And this is very alarming, and it quite frankly makes these people very angry that now suddenly we've got just this open border policy, come on in. And that's what people talk about. I have a lot of constituents, both sides of the aisle, that'll say, this makes me mad because it took me 10 years to get through the process, to get my paperwork done. It cost a lot of money. It took a lot of time. But they were proud, and they were proud to do it correctly. And now to just be this kind of free-for-all, if you will, it really aggravates New Mexicans. I can't speak for what they're thinking in other parts of the country. But in New Mexico, by and large, people that came through the southern border and did the paperwork and did it correctly are very upset and angry about the way these policies are working now and the way that borders just wide open. 
And it's, this isn't funny, but I had some constituents call me right around Christmas, right after Christmas. They had gone to Costa Rica mm-hmm. and ended up a couple of them in the group tested positive for COVID. And they called to see, you know, if there's anything we could do. And I mean, what I wanted to say was, look, ditch the passports and just come on through illegally. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. They won't even test you because right. that's just where it is. Of course, I didn't say that to them. And, right. you know, they stayed in quarantine. But the point is, is a double standard. And that's what I think the American people need to start really understanding. It is a complete double standard. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Look at all the fencing they had around the Capitol for, what, seven or eight, nine months last right. year. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll build a wall, of, a barrier around the Capitol to keep the American public out of the people's house, but they won't secure the southern border to keep illegals from coming into our country. You know, they want to defund the police. They don't want anybody having the ability to have the money in their budgets to protect our communities. And yet they want, you know, law enforcement, armed guards at their offices or escorting them around. I mean, the whole thing is just putting the American people second and putting these crazy policies, politics first. And that's, that's a shame because the American people deserve a much better governance than that. We're running low on time. So one last question I wanted to ask is if you do manage to secure re-election and the Republicans take the majority, you'd be in the majority then. Is there like one or two things sort of on the top of your list that you'd like to try to get a new Republican House to pass? Whether the president would sign them or not is a different question, but is there sort of one or two things on the to-do list that relate to border immigration that you think need to get done? Yeah, I think absolutely we would need to finish the border wall and put the remain in Mexico and the Title 42 policies back in play because they worked, they were effective, they were excellent tools for our Border Patrol agents. I mean, I think we need to build the morale. I'm just speaking about the border. We need to help build the morale back up for our agents that put their life on the line every day, put themselves in harm's way, and really pay attention to how this is hurting our economy, how it's hurting our communities, and just really pay attention to the American people and put them at the top of the list for once, instead of making them second-class citizens and giving so many benefits to those that break the law to get here and then get rewarded for it. I mean, the winners in this whole thing right now are the cartel, because they're the ones that are making all the money, transporting people over here. I mean, they're advertising on Craigslist and Facebook Hmm. about getting people here. And just a real quick thought that a lot of Americans don't even think about But when you start looking at the Northern Triangle and some of these other countries where migrants are either coming from or going through, it's killing their economy. I've met with seven ambassadors over the last 10 months that we've been here. I started meeting with them, you know, from Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, everybody. And this influx of people moving either out of their country or through, they're not the size of America. They cannot absorb that number of people. And what we're seeing, especially like in Guatemala, their workforce is leaving, you know, for the promise of a better future. And this is really complicating GDP and growth in other countries. And so it's a huge ripple effect. So not only are we shouldering the weight of all of these people, the expense on the American people, and we're blessed. We're in a country that right now we can do this, but I don't know for how much longer if we don't get our physical house in order. But the damage we're doing to the economies of these smaller nations around us, it's terrifying. 
you know, and so it is a much bigger problem than we just think about in our own backyard or just in America. You know, we it is a global issue, and it's all because this administration would not leave two simple policies in play that work, and now it, we've got a disaster at the southern border. Thank you, Congresswoman Yvette Harrell from the 2nd District in New Mexico, where she includes in her district about 10% of the U.S. southern border, part that doesn't get as much attention on the news very often, but it's obviously it's, a, it's an important part of the border issue. And I wish you good luck. Thanks for joining us. And when there are more developments down there, I hope maybe you'll come back and update us at that time. Would love to, Mark. And I think we're actually going to take another trip down to the border with the Oversight Committee Good. that went last year. They've asked to go back to see if there's been any change, which we all know they, there hasn't been. But when we get ready to do that trip, I'll let you know, and maybe you guys can join us. Excellent. Thank you. Again, Congresswoman Yvette Harrell, we'll put in a link to your Facebook page on our show notes. And thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Finally, I wanted to talk about whether some developments in the White House suggest that there may be a change in direction, or slightly anyway, in immigration policy under the Biden administration. The fact is that the president has been underwater with regard to public approval on immigration even before his general approval rating started tanking in the wake of Afghanistan and supply crises and all the rest of it. A recent poll, this is from uh, last month, by Morning Consult and Politico, so it's not a politically skewed poll, showed that 56% of respondents disapproved, 41% of them strongly disapproved of his immigration stance, compared to just 35% total approval. And that showed that independent voters, who were frankly the key ones who will determine the outcome of most elections, 64% of them disapprove of the president's handling of immigration. So this is a serious political weakness for the president. And the White House people there, while they may be in the thrall of ideology, they're not stupid. They understand that this is a a real threat, that this can be um, make the results of this coming election in November even worse than they're going to be otherwise. They're almost certainly going to lose the House, but it depends by how many seats. And the Democrats could hold on to the Senate, but maybe not if the president is too much of an albatross around their neck. And so it could be that in response to that, there have been some personnel changes because there are two key departures among immigration people from the White House. Esther Oliveria and Tyler Moran are two top people on immigration, policy people within the White House who are on the, if you will, the no borders side. Now, it's important to qualify that because the whole administration basically is of one mind on immigration. Essentially, everybody, both factions, if you will, within the administration regarding immigration have the same goal. They both assume that their objective is de facto unlimited immigration. I think that's more accurate than open borders because, you know, they'll say that borders are fine, but anything that actually results in limits on the numbers of immigration, they're against. So it's not that there is a disagreement 
ideologically within the administration. But I think there is some political concern. And there is a faction, uh, apparently, including Susan Rice, who is in charge of all domestic policy, was an important actor in the Obama White House as well, Ron Klain, who's chief of staff, who share the objectives of the no borders crowd. They all believe the same thing, but they're more cautious and they are concerned about political fallout in November. And the two people who departed, Esther Oliveria and Tyler Moran, were two women who are the ones actually running immigration policy, but their background is as advocates. In other words, they are maximalists on the immigration issue who don't want the administration to be taking some of the steps that it has been taking to try to seem somewhat less extreme on immigration. Because, for instance, there are some people from the border, Central Americans, who are being returned to Central America. They're being flown back. And that's something that the administration doesn't want to advertise. We've written about it at our blog post. Todd Benzman posted on it with photographs from a contact down in Latin America showing the charter planes dropping people off, the ICE aircraft. So they're doing some of these things. They don't want to advertise it because they're trying not to seem like they're embracing so-called Trump policies, but they are trying to do a few things that they hope will take the edge off the disaster at the border. I'm skeptical it's going to make any difference because these are half-hearted measures, something like restoring the Remain in Mexico program for illegal immigrants who are making bogus asylum claims. Again, very limited, grudging reinstitution of that program under court order, mind you. So it's not even something that they would have done otherwise. But these small steps, which I think are going to be ineffectual, nonetheless are too much for the advocacy groups. And so I think the two departures of Oliveria and Moran, literally, these are two of the top people in the White House with regard to immigration policy, is telling. The question is, will the administration be able to change course enough? It doesn't want to, and will it be able to, to change course enough to actually make a difference? Because the numbers of illegal immigrants being arrested at the border are still extraordinarily high record levels for every month. They've been going down the past couple of months. They were going down for a couple of months. It's probably going back up a little bit now, but they're at extremely high levels regardless of what they're doing. And I'm skeptical it's going to make any difference, but it is at least an indication that the administration may have some clue of how much trouble it's in, how deep the hot water is that it has gotten itself into on immigration. Like I said, I'm skeptical that it's going to make any difference, but as far as the good of the country, I'm hoping the administration does, in fact, reverse course significantly and start taking enforcement of the border seriously. They're still going to be bad on a whole variety of policy issues, but if the departure of these two immigration enthusiasts does, in fact, presage a change in course, then it would be all for the good. We'll have to see. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. That's it for this episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. 
This is Mark Krikorian. If you subscribe to the podcast on any of the platforms that allow reviews, we would be very happy for you to put in a five-star review. If you write any substantive comments, we'd be happy to hear them, even if you don't subscribe through one of those platforms. If you do have comments, we'd love to hear them. You can email me at msk, my initials, Mark Stephen Krikorian, msk at cis.org. Until next week, this is Mark Krikorian.